The Democratic leader is recognized. Mr. Chief Justice, I send an amendment to the desk to issue a subpoena to John Michael Mick Mulvaney, and I ask that it be read. Circle report. The Senator from New York, Mr. Schumer, proposes an amendment number 1287. At the appropriate place in the resolving clause, insert the following. Section, notwithstanding any other provision of this resolution pursuant to rules five and six of the rules of procedure and practice in the Senate when sitting on impeachment trials, the Chief Justice of the United States, through the Secretary of the Senate, shall issue a subpoena for the taking of testimony of John Michael Mick Mulvaney, and the Sergeant-at-Arms is authorized to utilize the services of the Deputy Sergeant-at-Arms or any other employee of the Senate in serving the subpoena authorized to be issued by this section. Mr. Chief Justice. The Majority Leader is recognized. I now ask for a 30-minute recess before the parties are recognized uh, to debate the Schumer Amendment. Following the debate time, I will once again uh, move to table the amendment because votes on witnesses and evidence, as I've repeatedly said, are addressed in the underlying uh, resolution. So I ask that the Senate stand in recess until 8 p.m. Without objection, so ordered. To bang the cavalry. Thank you. Mr. Cipollone? Okay. Mr. Schiff, you, the managers will go first and able to reserve time for rebuttal. Mr. Chief Justice, distinguished members of the Senate, Council for the President. My name is Hakeem Jeffries, and I have the honor of representing the 8th Congressional District of New York in Brooklyn and Queens. It is one of the most diverse districts in the nation. In fact, I've been told that I have the ninth most African-American district in the country, and the 16th most Jewish. And here on the Hill, some folks have said, Hakeem, is that complicated? But as my friend Leon Goldenberg says back at home, Hakeem, you've got the best of both worlds. You see, in America, our diversity is a strength. It is not a weakness. And one of the things that binds us together, all of us as Americans, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of region, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of gender, is that we believe in the rule of law and the importance of a fair trial. The House managers strongly support this amendment to subpoena witness testimony, including with respect to Mick Mulvaney. Who has ever heard of a trial with no witnesses? But that is exactly what some are contemplating here today. This amendment would address that fundamental flaw. It would ensure that the trial includes testimony from a key witness, the president's acting chief of staff and head of the Office of Management and Budget. Mick Mulvaney. 
and it would ensure that the Senate can consider his testimony immediately. Let's discuss why the need to hear from Mick Mulvaney is so critical. First, Leader McConnell's resolution undercuts more than 200 years of Senate impeachment trial practice. It departs from every impeachment trial conducted to date and goes against the Senate's own longstanding impeachment rules, which contemplates the possibility of new witness testimony. In fact, it departs from any criminal or civil trial procedure in America. Why should this president be held to a different standard? Second, the proposed amendment for witness testimony is necessary in light of the president's determined effort to bury the evidence and cover up his corrupt abuse of power. The House tried to get Mr. Mulvaney's testimony. We subpoenaed him. Mr. Mulvaney, together with other key witnesses, National Security Advisor John Bolton, senior White House aide Robert Blair, Office of Management and Budget official Michael Duffy, and National Security Council lawyer John Eisenberg, were called to testify before the House as part of this impeachment inquiry. But President Trump was determined to hide from the American people what they had to say. The president directed the entire executive branch and all of his top aides and advisors to defy all requests for their testimony. That cannot be allowed to stand. Third, Mr. Mulvaney is a highly relevant witness to the events at issue in this trial. Mr. Mulvaney was at the center of every stage of the president's substantial pressure campaign against Ukraine. Based on the extensive evidence the House did obtain, it is clear that Mulvaney was crucial in planning the scheme, executing its implementation, and carrying out the cover-up. Emails and witness testimony show that Mr. Mulvaney was in the loop on the president's decision to explicitly condition a White House meeting on Ukraine's announcement of investigations beneficial to the president's reelection prospects. He was closely involved in implementing the president's hold on the security assistance and subsequently admitted that the funds were being withheld to put pressure on Ukraine to conduct one of the phony political investigations that the president wanted, phony political investigations. A trial would not be complete without the testimony of Mick Mulvaney. Make no mistake, the evidentiary record that we have built is powerful and can clearly establish the president's guilt on both of the articles of impeachment, but it is hardly complete. The record comes to you without the testimony of Mr. Mulvaney and other important witnesses. And that brings me to one final preliminary observation. The American people agree that there cannot be a fair trial without hearing from witnesses who have relevant information to provide. The Constitution, 
our democracy, the Senate, the president, and most importantly, the American people deserve a fair trial. A fair trial requires witnesses in order to provide the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That is why this amendment should be adopted. Before we discuss Mr. Mulvaney's knowledge of the president's geopolitical shakedown, it is important to note that an impeachment trial without witnesses would be a stunning departure from this institution's past practice. This distinguished body has conducted 15 impeachment trials. All have included witnesses. Sometimes those trials included just a handful of witnesses, as indicated on the screen. At other times, they included dozens. In one case, there were over a hundred different witnesses. As the slide shows, the average number of witnesses to appear at a Senate impeachment trial is 33. And in at least three of those instances, including the impeachment of Bill Clinton, witnesses appeared before the Senate who had not previously appeared before the House. That's because the Senate, this great institution, has always taken its responsibility to administer a fair trial seriously. The Senate has always taken its duty to obtain evidence, including witness testimony, seriously. The Senate has always taken its obligation to evaluate the President's conduct based on a full body of available information seriously. This is the only way to ensure fundamental fairness for everyone involved. Respectfully, it is important to honor that unbroken precedent today so that Mr. Mulvaney's testimony, without fear or favor as to what he might say, can inform this distinguished body of Americans. This amendment is also important to counter the President's determination to bury the evidence of his high crimes and misdemeanors. As we've explained in detail today, despite considerable efforts by the House to obtain relevant documents and testimony, President Trump has directed the entire executive branch to execute a cover-up. He has ordered the entire administration to ignore the powers of Congress, a separate and co-equal branch of government, to investigate his offenses in a manner that is unprecedented in American history. There were 71 requests by the House for relevant evidence. In response, the White House produced zero documents in this impeachment inquiry. 71 requests, zero documents. President Trump is personally responsible for depriving the Senate of information important to consider in this trial. This point cannot be overstated. When faced with a congressional impeachment inquiry, 
a process expressly set forth by the framers of the Constitution in Article I, the President refused to comply in any respect. And he ordered his senior aides to fall in line. As shown on the slide, as a result of President Trump's obstruction, 12 key witnesses, including Mr. Mulvaney, refused to appear for testimony in the House's impeachment inquiry. No one has heard what they have to say. These witnesses include central figures in the abuse of power charged in Article I. What is the president hiding? Equally troublesome, President Trump and his administration did not make any legitimate attempts to reach a reasonable accommodation with the House or compromise regarding any document requests or witness subpoenas. Why? Because President Donald John Trump wasn't interested in cooperating. He was plotting a cover-up. It is important to take a step back and think about what President Trump is doing. Complete and total presidential obstruction is unprecedented in American history. Even President Nixon, whose articles of impeachment included obstruction of Congress, did not block key White House aides from testifying in front of Congress during the Senate Watergate hearings. In fact, he publicly urged White House aides to testify. Remember all of those witnesses who came in front of this body? Take a look at the screen. John Dean, the former White House counsel, testified for multiple days pursuant to a subpoena. H.R. Haldeman, President Nixon's former chief of staff, was subpoenaed and testified. Alexander Butterfield, the White House official who revealed the existence of the tapes, testified publicly before the Senate. And so did several others. President Trump's complete and total obstruction makes Richard Nixon look like a choir boy. Two other presidents have been tried before the Senate. How did they conduct themselves? William Jefferson Clinton and Andrew Johnson did not block any witnesses from participating in the Senate trial. President Trump, by contrast, refuses to permit relevant witnesses from testifying to this very day. Many of President Clinton's White House aides testified in front of Congress, even before the commencement of formal impeachment proceedings. During various investigations in the mid-1990s, the House and Senate heard from more than two dozen White House aides, including the White House counsel, the former chief of staff, and multiple senior advisors to President Clinton. President Clinton himself gave testimony on camera and under oath. He also allowed his most senior advisors, including multiple chiefs of staff and White House counsels, to testify in the investigation that led to his impeachment. And as you can see in the chart, their testimony was packaged and delivered to the Senate. There were no missing witnesses who had defied subpoenas. 
No aides who had personal knowledge of his misconduct were directed to stay silent by President Clinton. We have an entirely different situation in this case. Here we are seeking witnesses the President has blocked from testifying before the House. Apparently, President Trump thinks that he can do what no other president before him has attempted to do in such a brazen fashion. Float above the law and hide the truth from the American people. That cannot be allowed to stand. Let me now address some bedrock principles about Congress's authority to conduct investigations. Our broad powers of inquiry are at their strongest during an impeachment proceeding, when the House and Senate exercise responsibilities expressly set forth in Article I of the Constitution. Nearly 140 years ago, the Supreme Court recognized that when the House or Senate is determining a question of impeachment, there is no reason to doubt the right to compel the attendance of witnesses and their answer to proper questions in the same manner and by the use of the same means that courts of justice can in like cases. Our nation's founders and, and greatest legal minds recognized these principles early on. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story explained that the president should not have the power of preventing a thorough investigation of his conduct or of securing himself against the disgrace of a public conviction by impeachment if he should deserve it. President Trump cannot function as judge, jury, and executioner of our democracy. And it wasn't just the courts who confirmed this for us. Some of our nation's leading public servants. Representative John Quincy Adams speaking on the floor of the House after he had served as president once exclaimed, what mockery would it be for the Constitution of the United States to say that the House should have the power of impeachment extending even to the president of the United States himself, and yet to say that the House had not the power to obtain the evidence and proofs on which their impeachment was based. As Hamilton, Story, Adams, and others have recognized, the president cannot insulate himself from Congress's investigations of his wrongdoing. The president could decide what evidence gets to be presented in his own trial that would fundamentally nullify the constitutional power of impeachment. This amendment is important because President Trump simply cannot be allowed to hide the truth. No other president has done it. The Supreme Court does not allow it. And the president is not above the law. Witnesses matter. Documents matter. Evidence matters. The truth matters. Let me now turn to a third justification for this amendment, 
Mr. Mulvaney's testimony is critical to considering the case for removal. It is imperative that we hear from the president's closest aide, a man intimately involved at key stages of this extraordinary abuse of power. President Trump knows this. Why else would he be trying so hard to prevent Mick Mulvaney from testifying before you? There are at least four reasons why Mr. Mulvaney's testimony is critical. To begin with, as acting White House Chief of Staff and Head of the Office of Management and Budget, Mick Mulvaney has firsthand knowledge about President Trump's efforts to shake down Ukraine and pressure its new president into announcing phony investigations. Mr. Mulvaney was in the loop at each critical stage of President Trump's scheme. He was in the loop in the planning of the scheme. He was in the loop in its implementation. And he was in the loop when the scheme fell apart. He even admitted publicly that the aid was withheld in order to pressure Ukraine into announcing an investigation designed to elevate the president's political standing. Mr. Mulvaney, perhaps more than any other administration witness accepting the president, has firsthand insight into the decision to withhold $391 million in military and security aid to a vulnerable Ukraine without justification. Indeed, our investigation revealed that President Trump personally ordered Mr. Mulvaney to execute the freeze in July of 2019. Mr. Mulvaney holds the senior most staff position at the White House. He is a member of President Trump's cabinet, and he is responsible for President Trump's team at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. He remains the director of the Office of Management and Budget, which implemented the hold on the security assistance in violation of the law, as the Government Accountability Office recently concluded. In short, respectfully, the Senate's responsibility to conduct a complete and fair trial demands that Mr. Mulvaney testify. Second, Mr. Mulvaney's testimony is critical because of his knowledge of the planning of President Trump's abuse of power. Ambassador Gordon Sondland, the U.S. Ambassador to the European Union, testified that there was a quid pro quo. Ambassador Sondland is not a so-called never-Trumper. Mr. Sondland, gave $1 million to President Trump's inauguration. He testified that everybody was in the loop and that it was no secret what was going on. In fact, as early as May of 2019, Ambassador Sondland made clear that he was coordinating on Ukraine matters with Mr. Mulvaney 
Here is what David Holmes, an official at the U.S. Embassy in Ukraine, had to say on that matter. Well, Ambassador Sondland's mandate as, as the accredited ambassador to the European Union did not cover individual member states, let alone non-member countries like Ukraine. He made clear that he had direct and frequent access to President Trump and Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and portrayed himself as the conduit to the President and Mr. Mulvaney for this group. After the U.S. delegation returned from the inauguration of the new Ukrainian president in April, they were able to secure an Oval Office meeting with President Trump to brief him on their trip, in part because of Ambassador Sondland's connections to Mick Mulvaney. Then, during a June 18, 2019 meeting, Ambassador Sondland informed National Security Council Senior Director Dr. Fiona Hill that he was in charge of Ukraine and that he had been briefing senior White House officials, including Mr. Mulvaney, about his efforts to undertake, as Dr. Hill put it, a domestic political errand in Ukraine. Here is Dr. Hill explaining this herself. So I was upset with him that he wasn't fully telling us about all of the meetings that he was having. And he said to me, but I'm briefing the president. I'm briefing Chief of Staff Mulvaney. I'm briefing Secretary Pompeo, and I've talked to Ambassador Bolton. Who else do I have to deal with? And the point is we have a robust interagency process uh, that deals with Ukraine. It includes Mr. Holmes. It includes Ambassador Taylor as the charge in Ukraine. It includes a whole load of other people. But it struck me when yesterday, when you put up on the screen Ambassador Sondland's emails and who was on these emails, and he said, these are the people who need to know that he was absolutely right because he was being involved in a domestic political errand. And we were being involved in national security foreign policy, and those two things had just diverged. And there's more, much more. A month later, President Trump's national security advisor at the time, John Bolton, told Dr. Fiona Hill to tell the National Security Council's lawyers that he was not part of whatever drug deal Sondland and Mulvaney were cooking up. He made that statement after Ambassador Sondland specifically said that he had a deal with Mr. Mulvaney to schedule a White House visit for President Zelensky if Ukraine announced two phony investigations involving the Bidens and 2016 election interference investigations that were sought by President Donald John Trump. Here is Dr. Hill's testimony about Sondland describing this drug deal he had with Mulvaney. And so when I came in, uh, Gordon Sondland uh, was basically saying, well, look, we have a deal here that there will be a meeting. I have a deal here with, uh, with uh, Chief of Staff Mulvaney. There will be a meeting if the Ukrainians open up or announce these investigations and, uh, into 2016 in Burisma. And I cut it off immediately there. 
because by this point, having heard Mr. Giuliani over and over again on the television and all of the issues uh, that he was um, asserting, by this point, it was clear that Burisma was code for the Bidens because Giuliani was laying it out there. Uh, I could see why Colonel Vindman was alarmed. And he said, this is inappropriate. We're the National Security Council. We can't be involved in this. The referenced agreement between Ambassador Sondland and Mick Mulvaney was so upsetting that Dr. Hill reported it to National Security Council legal advisors. Here is the testimony of Dr. Hill explaining these particular concerns. What, what did yes, he say? but he was, he was making a very strong point that he wanted to know exactly what was being said. And when I came back and related to it to him, he had some very specific instruction for me. And I'm presuming that that's um, what was that specific that instruction? The specific instruction was that I had to go to the lawyers, to John Eisenberg, uh, our senior counsel for the National Security Council, uh, to basically say, you tell Eisenberg, Ambassador Bolton told me, that I am not part of uh, this whatever drug deal that Mulvaney and Sunderland are cooking up. What did you understand him to mean by the drug deal that Mulvaney and Sondland were cooking up? I took it to mean investigations for a meeting. Did you go speak to the lawyers? I certainly did. Sondland's testimony not only corroborates Dr. Hill's account, he actually says that Mick Mulvaney, the subject of this amendment, who should appear before the Senate, if we're going to have a free and fair trial. Sondland says Mick Mulvaney knew all about it. What I want to ask you about is he makes reference in that drug deal to a drug deal cooked up by you and Mulvaney. Um, it's the reference to Mulvaney that I want to ask you about. Um, you've testified in that Mulvaney was aware of this quid pro quo, of this condition that the Ukrainians had to meet, that is, announcing these public investigations to get the White House meeting. Is that right? Yeah, a lot of people were aware of it. Um, and in including, about, including Mr. Mulvaney. Correct. The documents also highlight the extensive involvement of Mick Mulvaney in this geopolitical shakedown scheme. Email messages summarized by Ambassador Sondland during his sworn testimony showed that he informed Mr. Mulvaney, as well as Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Perry, of his efforts to persuade President Zelensky to announce the investigations desired by President Trump. For example, as shown on the screen, on July 19th, Ambassador Sondland emailed several top administration officials including Mr. Mulvaney, stating that he had talked to President Zelensky to help prepare him for a phone call with President Trump. And he reported that President Zelensky planned to assure President Trump that he intends to run a fully transparent investigation and will turn over every stone. Ambassador Sondland made clear in his testimony that he was referring to the Burisma Biden and 2016 election interference investigations that were explicitly mentioned 
by President Trump on the July 25th phone call. Mr. Mulvaney wrote in response, I asked NSC to set it up. What exactly did Mr. Mulvaney know about the Ukrainian commitment to turn over every stone? And when did he know it? These and many other questions require answers under oath from Mr. Mulvaney. Mr. Mulvaney is also a central figure with respect to how President Trump implemented this pressure campaign. According to public reports and witness testimony, Mr. Mulvaney was deeply involved with implementing the scheme, including the unlawful White House freeze on $391 million in aid to Ukraine. But this isn't just other people fingering Mr. Mulvaney. Mr. Mulvaney has himself admitted that he was involved. Again, I was, I was involved with the, uh, the process by which the money was held up temporarily. Okay. The public reports confirm Mr. Mulvaney's own account that he has information that goes to the heart of this inquiry specifically related to why the president ordered the hold on aid to Ukraine and kept it in place, despite deep-seated concerns among Trump administration officials. This New York Times article on the screen summarizes an email conversation between Mr. Mulvaney and Robert Blair, a senior administration advisor on June 27th. When Mr. Mulvaney asked, did we ever find out about the money for Ukraine and whether we can hold it back? What prompted that email? According to public reports, Mr. Mulvaney was on Air Force One. Air Force One with President Trump when he sent it. What other conversations did Mr. Mulvaney have with the president and White House officials about this unlawful freeze. The American people deserve to know. There is other significant evidence concerning Mr. Mulvaney's role in implementing the scheme. According to multiple witnesses, the direction to freeze the security assistance to Ukraine was delivered by Mick Mulvaney himself. Office of Management and Budget official Mark Sandy testified about a July 12th email from Mr. Blair stating that President Trump is directing a hold on military support funding for Ukraine. Was Mr. Blair acting at Mr. Mulvaney's express direction? the members of this distinguished body deserve to know. On July 18th, the hold was announced to the agencies in the administration overseeing Ukraine policy matters. Those present were blindsided by the announcement that the security aid appropriated by this Congress on a bipartisan basis to Ukraine 
which is still at war with Russian-backed separatists in the East. They were alarmed that that aid had inexplicably been put on hold. Meanwhile, officials at the Defense Department and within the Office of Management and Budget became increasingly concerned that the hold also violated the law. Their concerns turned out to be accurate. Public reports have indicated that the White House is in possession of early August emails, exchanges between Acting Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney and White House budget officials seeking to provide an explanation for the funds. An explanation, I should note, that they were trying to provide after the president had already ordered the hold. Mr. Mulvaney presumably has answers to these questions. We don't know what those answers are, but he should provide them to this Senate and to the American people. Finally, on October 17, 2019, at a press briefing, at the White House, Mr. Mulvaney left no doubt that President Trump withheld the essential military aid as leverage to try to extract phony political investigations as part of his effort to solicit foreign interference in the 2020 election. This was an extraordinary press conference. Mr. Mulvaney made clear that the president was, in fact, pressuring Ukraine to investigate the conspiracy theory that Ukraine, rather than Russia, had interfered in the 2016 election. A conspiracy theory promoted by none other than the great purveyor of democracy, Vladimir Putin himself. When White House reporters attempted to clarify this acknowledgement of a quid pro quo, related to security assistance, Mr. Mulvaney replied, we do that all the time with foreign policy. I have news for you, get over it. Let's listen to a portion of that stunning exchange. Did he also mention to me in the past the, 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 the corruption related to the DNC server? Absolutely. No question about that. Um, but that's it. And that's why we held up the money. Now, there was a report. So, so, so the demand for an investigation into the Democrats was part of the reason that he it was on to withhold funding to Ukraine. The, the look back to what happened in 2016 certainly was, was part of the thing that he was worried about in corruption with that nation. And that is withholding, absolutely appropriate. But to be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. We were holding up money at the same time for, uh, what was it, the Northern Triangle countries. We were holding up aid at the Northern Triangle countries so that they, uh, so that they would change their policies on immigration. By, by the way, and this speaks, to a, this speaks to an important, I'm sorry, this speaks to an important point, because I heard this yesterday, and I can never remember the gentleman who testified. Was it McKinney, the guy? Is that his name? I don't know him. He testified yesterday. And if you go, and if you believe the news reports, okay, because we've not seen any transcripts of this. The only transcript I've seen was Sondland's testimony this morning. If you read the news reports and you believe them, what did McKinney say yesterday? 
when McKinney said yesterday that he was really upset with the political influence in foreign policy. That was one of the reasons he was so upset about this. And I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. In this extraordinary press conference, Mr. Mulvaney spoke with authority and conviction about why President Trump withheld the aid. He did not mince his words, but then following the press conference, he tried to walk back his statements as if he had not said them or had not meant them. We need to hear from Mick Mulvaney directly so he can clarify his true intentions. Now, having gone through the need for the evidence, let's briefly address the President's arguments that he can block this testimony. That argument is not only wrong, it fundamentally undermines our system of checks and balances. Step back for a moment and consider the extraordinary position that President Trump is trying to manufacture for himself. The Department of Justice has already said that the President cannot be indicted or prosecuted in office. As we sit here today, the President has actually filed a brief in the Supreme Court saying he cannot be criminally investigated as well while in the White House. So the Senate and the House are the only check that are left when the President abuses his power, tries to cheat in the next election, undermines our national security, breaks the law in doing so, and then tries to cover it up. This is America. No one is above the law. But if the President is allowed to determine whether he is even investigated by Congress, if he is allowed to decide whether he should comply with lawful subpoenas in connection with an impeachment inquiry or trial, then he is the ultimate arbiter of whether he did anything wrong. That cannot stand. If he can't be indicted, and he can't be impeached, and he can't be removed, then he can't be held accountable. That is inconsistent with the United States Constitution. Now, you will no doubt hear that the reason that the President blocked all of these witnesses, including Mr. Mulvaney, from testifying is because of some lofty concern for the office of the presidency and, and the preservation of executive privilege. Let's get real. How can blocking witnesses from telling the truth about the president's misconduct help preserve the office of the presidency? This type of blanket obstruction undermines the credibility of the office of the presidency and deals the Constitution a potentially mortal death blow. To be clear, executive privilege does not provide a legally justifiable basis for his complete and total blockage of evidence. In fact, as you heard earlier today, President Trump never even invoked executive privilege not once. And without ever asserting this privilege, how can you consider his argument in a serious fashion? Instead, speaking through 
Mr. Cipollone, the distinguished White House counsel, in a letter dated October 8, 2019, President Trump simply decided that he did not want to participate in the investigation into his own wrongdoing. It was a categorical decision not to cooperate without consideration of specific facts or legal arguments. In fact, even the words that President Trump used through his White House counsel were made up. In the letter, Mr. Cipollone referred to so-called executive branch confidentiality interest. But that is not a recognized jurisprudential shield, not a proper assertion of executive privilege. To the extent that there are privilege issues to consider, those can be resolved during the testimony, as they have been for decades. And finally, the president claimed that Mr. Mulvaney could not be compelled to testify because of so-called absolute immunity. But every court to address this legal fiction has rejected it. As the Supreme Court emphatically stated in unanimous fashion, in its decision on the Nixon tapes, confidentiality interests of the president must yield to an impeachment inquiry when there is a legitimate need for the information, as there is here today. There can be no doubt that Mr. Mulvaney, as the president's chief of staff and head of the Office of Management and Budget, is uniquely situated to provide this distinguished body with relevant and important information about the charges in the articles of impeachment. The president's obstruction has no basis in law and should yield to this body's co-equal authority to investigate impeachable and corrupt conduct. One final point bears mention. If the president wanted to make witnesses available, even while preserving the limited protections of executive privilege, he can do so. In fact, President Trump expressed his desire for witnesses to testify in the Senate just last month. Let's go to the videotape. So when it's fair, it will be fair in the Senate, I would love to have Mike Pompeo. I'd love to have Mitch. I'd love to have uh, Rick Perry uh, and many other people testify. If President Trump has nothing to hide, as he is and his advisors repeatedly claim, they should all simply testify in the Senate trial. What is President Donald John Trump hiding from the American people? The Constitution requires a fair trial. Our democracy needs a fair trial. The American people deserve a fair trial. A fair trial means witnesses. A fair trial means documents. A fair trial means a consideration of all of the available evidence. A fair trial means testimony from Mick Mulvaney. Mr. Chief Justice, the House managers reserve the balance of our time. 
Mr. Cipollone. Mr. Chief Justice, members of the Senate, good evening. My name is Michael Propura. I serve as Deputy Counsel to the President. We strongly oppose the amendment and support the resolution. There is simply no need to alter the process on witness, witnesses and documents from that of the Clinton trial which was supported by this body 100 to 0. At its core, this case is very simple and the key facts are undisputed. First, you've seen the transcripts which the President released transparently, unprecedentedly. There was no quid pro quo for anything. Security assistance funds aren't even mentioned on the call. Second, President Zelensky and the highest ranking officials in the Ukrainian government repeatedly have said there was no quid pro quo and there was no pressure. Third, the Ukrainians were not even aware of the pause in the aid at the time of the call and weren't aware of it, did not become aware of it, until more than a month later. Fourth, the only witnesses in the House record who actually spoke to the President about the aid Ambassador Sondland and Senator Ron Johnson say the President was unequivocal in saying there was no quid pro quo. Fifth, and this one's pretty obvious, the aid flowed and President Trump and President Zelensky met without any investigations started or announced. Finally, and I ask that you not lose sight of the big picture here, by providing lethal aid to Ukraine, President Trump has proven himself to be a better friend and ally to Ukraine than his predecessor. The time for the House managers to bring their case is now. They had their chance to develop their evidence before they sent the articles of impeachment to this chamber. This chamber's role is not to do the House's job for it. With that, I yield the balance of my time to Mr. Cipollone. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Just a couple of observations. First of all, 
as Mr. Papura said, all we're talking about is when this question is addressed. Under the resolution, that'll be next week. This resolution was accepted a hundred to nothing. Some of you were here then, thought it was great. If we keep going like this, it'll be next week. For those of you keeping score at home, they haven't even started yet. We're here today, we came hoping to have a trial. They spent the entire day telling you and the American people that they can't prove their case. I could have told you that in five minutes and saved us all a lot of time. They came here talking about the GAO. It's an organization that works for Congress. Do you know who disagrees with the GAO? Don't take it from me. They do. They sent you articles of impeachment that makes no claim of any violation of any law. By the way, you know what also doesn't? You can search high and low on the articles of impeachment. You know what it doesn't say? Quid pro quo. Because there wasn't any. Only in Washington would someone say that it's wrong when you don't spend taxpayer dollars fast enough, even if you spend them on time. Now let's talk about the Judiciary Committee for a second. Two days in the Judiciary Committee, two days. The Judiciary Committee is supposed to be in charge of impeachments. The delivery time for the articles they produced was 33 days. I think this might be the first impeachment in history where the delivery time was longer than the investigation in the Judiciary Committee. They come here and falsely accuse people. Oh, by the way, they falsely accused you. You're on trial now. They falsely accuse people of phony political investigations. Really? Since the House Democrats took over, that's all we've had from them. They've used their office, all the money, that the taxpayers send to Washington to pay them to conduct phony political investigations against the president, against his family, against anyone who knew him. They started impeaching him the minute he was elected. They've weaponized the House of Representatives to investigate incessantly their political opponent. And they come here and make false allegations of phony political investigations. I think the doctors call that projection. It's time for it to end. It's time for someone, for the Senate, to hold them accountable. Think about what they're asking. I said it. They didn't deny it. They're trying to remove President Trump's name from the ballot, and they can't prove their case. They've told you that all day long. Think about what they're asking 
some of you senators to do. Some of you are running for president. They're asking you to use your office to remove your political opponent from the ballot. That's wrong. That's not in the interest of our country. And to be honest with you, it's not really a show of confidence. So we will, I suppose, have this debate again next week if we ever get there. It's getting late. I would ask you respectfully if we could simply start. Maybe tomorrow we can start and they can make their argument and they can, I guess, make a case that they once called overwhelming. We'll see. But this resolution is right and it's fair and it makes sense. You have a right to hear what they have to say before you have to decide these critical issues. That's all this is about. Is it now or is it a week from now? Seriously, can we please start? Thank you. The House, <clears throat> Mr. Cipollone, is your side complete? Yes, we are, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you. The House managers have 14 minutes remaining. Counsel for the President indicated that we have not charged President Trump with a crime. We have charged him with crimes against the United States Constitution, high crimes and misdemeanors, abuse of power, strikes at the very heart of what the framers of the Constitution were concerned about, betrayal of one's oath of office for personal gain, and the corruption of our democracy. High crimes and misdemeanors, that's what this trial is all about. Now, counsel for the president, again, has declined to address the substantive merits of the amendment that has been offered. Tried to suggest that House Democrats have only been focused on trying to oust President Trump. Nothing can be further from the truth. In the last year, we passed 400 bills sent into this chamber. 275 of those bills are bipartisan in nature, addressing issues like lowering health care costs and prescription drug prices, trying to deal with the gun violence epidemic. We've worked with President Trump on criminal justice reform. I personally worked with him along with all of you on the First Step Act. We worked with him on the U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement. We worked with him to fund the government. We don't hate this president, but we love the Constitution. We love America. We love our democracy. That's why we're here today. The question was asked by Mr. Sekulo. As he opened before this distinguished by why, why, why are we here? Let me see if I can just posit an answer to that question. We are here, sir, because President Trump pressured a foreign government 
to target an American citizen for political and personal gain. We are here, sir, because President Trump solicited foreign interference in the 2020 election and corrupted our democracy. We are here, sir, because President Trump withheld $391 million in military aid from a vulnerable Ukraine without justification in a manner that has been deemed unlawful. We are here, sir, because President Donald Trump elevated his personal political interests and subordinated the national security interests of the United States of America. We are here, sir, because President Trump corruptly abused his power and then he tried to cover it up. And we are here, sir, to follow the facts, apply the law, be guided by the Constitution, and present the truth to the American people. That is why we are here, Mr. Seculo. And if you don't know, now you know. I yield to my distinguished colleague, Chairman Schiff. I thank the gentleman for yielding and um, just want to provide a couple quick fact checks uh, on my colleagues at the other table. Um, first, Mr. Papura said that security assistance funds were not mentioned at all in the July 25th call between President Trump and President Zelensky. Well, let's, let's think back to what was discussed in that call. Uh, you might remember from that call that President Zelensky thanks President Trump for the Javelin anti-tank weapons and says they're ready to order some more. And what is President Trump's immediate response? I have a favor to ask, though. What was it about the President of Ukraine bringing up military assistance that triggered the President to go immediately to the favor that he wanted? I think that's telling that it takes place in that part of the conversation. So, yes, security assistance, military assistance did come up in that call. It came up immediately preceding the ask. What kind of message do you think that sends to Ukraine? They're not stupid. The people watching this aren't stupid. Now, Mr. Papora says, well, they never found out about it, or they didn't find out about the freeze in the aid until a month later. Mr. Papora needs to be a little more careful with his facts. Let me tell you about some of the testimony you're going to hear, and you'll only hear it because it took place in the House. If these were other witnesses, you wouldn't be able to hear it. But you had Catherine Croft, a witness from the State Department, a career official at the State Department, who talked about how quickly, actually, after the freeze went into place, the Ukrainians found out about it, and she started getting contacts from the Ukrainian embassy here in Washington. She said she was really impressed with their diplomatic tradecraft. Now, what does that mean? It means she was really impressed with how quickly the Ukrainians found out about something that the administration was trying to hide from the American people. Ukraine found out about it. In fact, Laura Cooper, a career uh, official at the Defense Department, said that her office started getting inquiries from Ukraine about 
the issues with the aid on July 25th, the very day of the call. So much for Ukraine not finding out about this for a month later. But I thought this was very telling, too. The New York Times disclosed that by July 30th, so within a week of the call between President Trump and President Zelensky, Ukraine's foreign ministry received a diplomatic cable from its embassy indicating that Trump had frozen the military aid. Within a week, that cable is reported to have gone from the Ukrainian embassy to the Ukrainian foreign ministry. And the former Ukrainian Deputy Foreign Minister Olena Zerkal said, quote, we have this information. It was definitely mentioned that there were some issues. She went on to say that the cable was simultaneously provided to President Zelensky's office. But Andrei Yermak, who you'll learn more about later, a top aide to President Zelensky, reportedly directed her to keep silent and not discuss the hold with reporters or Congress. Now, we heard testimony about why the Ukrainians wanted to keep it secret, that they knew about the hold. You can imagine why. Zelensky didn't want his own people to know that the President of the United States was holding back aid from him. What does that look like for a new President of Ukraine who is trying to make the case that he's going to be able to defend his own country because he has such a great relationship with the great patron of the United States? He didn't want Ukrainians to know about it, but you know even more than that, he didn't want the Russians to know about it for the reasons we talked about earlier. So yes, the Ukrainians kept it close to the vest. Now, Mr. Papur also went on to say, well, the Ukrainians say they don't feel any pressure. That's what they say now. Of course, we know that's not true. We've had testimony that they didn't want to be used as a political pawn in U.S. domestic politics. They resisted it. You'll hear more testimony about that, about the efforts to push back on this public statement, how they tried to water it down, how they tried to leave out the specifics, and how Giuliani at the president's behest forced them to know, no, this isn't going to be credible if you don't add Burisma and you don't add 2016. You'll hear about the pressure. They felt it. So why isn't President Zelensky now saying he was pressured? Well, can you imagine the impact of that? Can you imagine the impact of President Zelensky if he were to acknowledge today, hell yes, we felt pressured, you would too. We're at war with Russia, for crying out loud. Yeah, we felt pressure. We needed those hundreds of millions of military aid, but you think I'm going to say that now? I still can't get in the White House door. They let Lavrov in, the Russian foreign minister, they let him in. I can't even get in the White House door. You think I'm going to go out now and admit to this, this scheme? I mean, anyone who's watched this president the last three years knows how vindictive he can be. Do you think it would be smart for the president of Ukraine to contradict the president of the United States so directly on an issue he's being impeached for? That would be the worst form of malpractice for the new president of Ukraine. We shouldn't be surprised he would deny it. We should be surprised if he were to admit it. Now, let me just end with a couple observations about Mr. Cipollone's comments. He says, this is no big deal. We're not talking about 
when we're going to have witnesses or, or if we're going to have witnesses. We're just talking about when. We're just talking about when. As if, well, later they're going to say, oh, yes, well, we're happy to have the witnesses now. It's just a question of when. Okay. As my colleague said, let's be real. There will be no when. There will be no when. Do you think they're going to have an epiphany a few days from now and say, okay, we're ready for witnesses? No, no. Their goal is get you to say no now, get you to have the trial, and then argue, make it go away. Let's dismiss the whole thing. That's the plan. A vote to delay is a vote to deny. Let's make no mistake about that. They're not going to have an epiphany a few days from now and suddenly say, okay, the American people do deserve the answers. Their whole goal is that you'll never get to that point. You'll never get to that point. When they say when, they mean never. I yield back. The majority leader is recognized. I make a um, motion to um, table the amendment and ask for the yeas and nays. Is there a sufficient second? There is. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Alexander. Ms. Baldwin. Mr. Barrasso. Mr. Bennett. Mrs. Blackburn. Mr. Blumenthal. Mr. Blunt. Mr. Booker. Mr. Bozeman. Mr. Braun. Mr. Brown. Mr. Burr, Ms. Cantwell, Mrs. Capito, Mr. Carden, Mr. Carper, Mr. Casey, Mr. Cassidy, Ms. Collins, Mr. Coons, Mr. Cornyn, Ms. Cortez Masto, Mr. Cotton, Mr. Kramer, Mr. Crapo, Mr. Cruz, Mr. Danes, Ms. Duckworth, Mr. Durbin, Mr. Inzi, Ms. Ernst, Mrs. Feinstein, Mrs. Fisher, Mr. Gardner, Mrs. Gillibrand, Mr. Graham, Mr. Grassley, Ms. Harris, Ms. Hassan, Mr. Hawley, Mr. Heinrich, Ms. Hirono, Mr. Hoven, Mrs. Hyde-Smith, Mr. Inhofe, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Jones, Mr. Kane, 
Mr. Kennedy. Aye. Mr. King. No. Ms. Klobuchar. Mr. Lankford. Mr. Leahy. Mr. Lee. Mrs. Leffler. Mr. Manchin. Mr. Markey. Mr. McConnell. Ms. McSally. Mr. Menendez. Mr. Merkley. Mr. Moran. Ms. Murkowski. Mr. Murphy. Mrs. Murray. Mr. Paul. Mr. Purdue. Mr. Peters. Mr. Portman. Mr. Reed. Mr. Risch. Mr. Roberts. Mr. Romney. Ms. Rosen. Mr. Rounds. Mr. Rubio. Mr. Sanders. Mr. Sass. Mr. Schatz. Mr. Schumer. Mr. Scott of Florida. Mr. Scott of South Carolina. Mrs. Shaheen. Mr. Shelby. Ms. Cinema. Ms. Smith. Ms. Stabenow. Mr. Sullivan. Mr. Tester. Mr. Thune. Mr. Tillis. Mr. Toomey. Mr. Udall. Mr. Van Hollen. Mr. Warner. Ms. Warren. Mr. Whitehouse. Mr. Wicker. Mr. Wyden. Mr. Young. Are there any senators in the chamber wishing to change his or her vote? If not, the yeas are 53 and the nays are 47. The amendment is tabled. Mr. Chief Justice. A Mr. Majority Leader is recognized. I would ask consent to ask the Democratic leader, since there's a certain similarity to all these amendments, uh, whether he might be willing to enter into a uh, consent agreement to stack uh, these votes. With, without objection, the inquiry is permitted. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. The bottom line is very simple. As has been clear to every senator and the country, we believe witnesses and documents are extremely important and a compelling case has been made for them. We will have votes on all of those. We will also, the leader, without consulting us, made changes, a number of significant changes that significantly deviated from the 1999 Clinton resolution. We want to change those. So there will be a good number of votes. We are willing 
to do some of those votes tomorrow. There's no reason we have to do them all tonight and inconvenience the Senate and the Chief Justice, but we will not back off on getting votes on all of these amendments, which we regard as extremely significant and important to the country. As I've said, Consent was for a, a question. As I've said repeatedly, all of these amendments uh, under the resolution could be dealt with at the appropriate time. I suggest the absence of quorum.